0: And uh, welcome back to uh, another class in the bunker. Um, We took a break last week for uh, those who are watching uh, a little bit later on. We took a break last week over the general conference weekend but we're roaring back. I hope that uh, General Conference uh, gave you all the things that you were looking for, because I thought there were a lot of beautiful lessons, particularly around those that are are struggling at this time and seem to be having a a harder time with life. So uh, we're grateful for those uh, inspired brothers and sisters and the wonderful messages uh, that they share. Um, Again, uh, welcome. Uh, Make sure that you hit like on this thing to let us know you're here, and and if you would, let us know where you're coming from. So, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Fun topic, right? Um, Does God grade on the curve? I think we're afraid of that, and some of that depends a lot on how we view God. So, I want to talk a little bit today about how we view God, how Moses viewed God, and ultimately how the children of Israel would come to to view God, because it has such a, a long reaching arm into even how we believe about some things today Um, i I came across uh, some of these uh, recently Uh, they asked children uh, to draw pictures of how they saw god and uh, that's always an interesting and there were just a couple of examples that i thought was great i like this one Uh, and i know you can't see it it, and and what she wrote uh, this is gabby age nine she says God has giant ears so he can hear everything we are saying. Isn't that fun? We got the great big ears. This is a God of big ears because he can hear everything. Kind of like Santa Claus who knows when we've been good or bad. (laughs) right? So there is that sense of of that. Uh, Now another one who's probably watched too many uh, Avenger movies says, well no, God is the superhero for the world. Uh, got a little G on here and can fly around. And so, so God is basically a superhero who can do anything and has superpowers. Okay, I thought that was good. And then finally, I, I like this one. It gives us a contemporary view of where uh, we see things these days. Uh, th- this is uh, one child, 11, who says, this is God sitting at his cloud desk. And obviously, he's looking at all of the monitors. So he can see what his kids are doing on the monitors. It's like God is a big closed-circuit network, just watching everything. And so we have a swing set here. And we have little kids playing. And she'd even inserted a giraffe. God is watching the giraffes. Uh, so, So this is God sitting at the cloud desk watching all that. Isn't that awesome? Okay, now. That that brings us, I think, to a, a little more serious question here, and that is, how do we view, how do you view, our heavenly parents? What is your picture of uh, not just uh, who they are, but what they do, and and how they relate? And as we've kind of been edging towards this the last couple of lessons. Um, If we bring this around, we come up with how do we view our heavenly parents? Well, all mortality, I don't care who it is, views God or Godhood uh, or or heaven in terms of a relationship. Even an atheist who, who says there is no God is in terms of no relationship, but the window through which we look at deity is in terms of some type of relationship with them and they with us. So let me give you uh, a quick example, I think, of. uh, I realize these are kind of gross stereotypic examples, but I I think it kind of fits our bill here. So a few examples here. Uh, Some see him as an ancient and absent builder. This was certainly the uh, Epicureans uh, at Mars Hill with, with Paul. Who, uh, who saw that. Uh, yeah, he built the thing. Uh, it was Zeus built the thing, but uh, he's now gone. Uh, and that was a long time ago, so not really that involved on the day-to-day things until the world is going to kind of blow up all at once. How about this one? There are a lot of people that want to say, yeah, I kind of believe in deity or spirituality or something, but if there is a god I see him, uh, to use C.S. Lewis's analogy, I see him as a loving but distant grandfather. Y'all have fun. Go do whatever you want. Have a great time. Uh, it's, like our, it's like our youth at a, a youth activity and you're going to ask a kid to say a prayer. And almost always they say, "We're well, glad to be here. Thankful to the, the church. And we pray that we'll all have fun. Because the goal is, if you're gonna have a youth activity, we're all gonna have fun, you know? And then they have to come to understand that maybe pulling a handcart through the mud isn't fun, but it may be helpful. Uh, Or mowing the lawn may not be fun, but we feel good about it. But by, by and large, there's an awful lot of teens that wanna say, okay, we want to believe in the God of having fun, want you to have a great time. If you're not having a great time, then Uh, then kind of what's the point, right? How about this one? Sometimes, depending on the the faith tradition and the religion, seem as a demanding coach. uh, You're supposed to follow and listen. I will be fair, but I'm going to quick to make you run laps. Or if you're not listening to me, drop and give me 20. Uh, Or I'm going to pull you out of the game because you're blowing it. Uh, And I may get in your face. I love you, but man, I'm going to get in your face and bark at you for all the things that you're doing wrong. Uh, That that demanding coach kind of thing, kind of the the Vince Lombardi of heaven, uh, if you will. Or there's a lot of them that are going to go kind of with the helicopter mom god. Uh, Remember how mom has eyes in the back of her head. She knows what you've been doing. Doesn't miss anything and make sure that nothing goes wrong. You're going to uh, you know, get after the bullies, call the school if they're being mean and, you know, and kind of be that constant intervener. And there's a lot of people that would really uh, struggle with the concept of God because they're really wanting the helicopter God. Make sure no bad things happen. And intervene as quickly as they're going to or catch them before they do they want the helicopter God who is always involved in every little minute thing but kind of controlling and may and in the process of all of that the kids that grow up with helicopter parents never really grow and trust themselves very much but they're going to rely a lot on the helicopter God mom who was going to take care of everything for them So sometimes you can see that as a, there's good news and bad news. Uh, I never got into a lot of trouble, but my mom was kind of codependent, and she she cried at night when I did bad things, and I was fine because she had the thing. And, by the way, she did my dishes. It was awesome. Okay? How about this one? It's another one where I don't believe in God, but the relationship I have with God is kind of this, unembodied essence that's everywhere and nowhere and it's in my heart and it's around I believe in a higher power but it's not really embodying a, a single person uh, and it really is the may the force be with you kind of God uh, it's there, it goes through everything and, uh, and certainly we, we believe that with the light of Christ and the light and the essence of which is everything but sometimes they're looking at the power of that and assuming that that is God So God is really inside you, and leading you on, and it's just that kind of a kind of a mysterious kind of thing. And you know, may God be with you is really saying, may the Force be with you. uh, Learn how to control the Force, kind of thing, right? Um, And then the other one is, and and maybe if you know, if we have been been parents ourselves. We understand this a little bit more, and I think sometimes in our culture we miss this a little bit because we may see God and and our heavenly parents as loving and merciful parents. They're going to teach and guide with a goal towards our own growth. And any uh, negative thing that comes along is actually their discipline in, in helping to push us forward but but they're not inclined to punish it, they're not anxious and not willing i don't think it's even in their nature to punish they may discipline and shape but they're not wanting to punish for punishment's sake just because you broke the law okay uh, so uh, as i've mentioned before i think sometimes we we battle all of these things and we struggle with what does it mean in terms of commandments and rules and laws and we're going to see that if there is a God and God has given us a ten commandments or, or something like that then how are we going to see it in terms of how we see them because an absent and ancient builder may have had some laws in the past but you know, it's up to us and not going to really kind of intervene. And this loving but distant grandfather says, "Ah, I wish you wouldn't do that, but you know, what are you going to do? Kids are kids and they're just going to have, go have fun. Just don't, you know, get too serious. And if you're going to drink after prom, then we better get you a hotel room because you're going to have fun anyway. What can you do? Okay. So how we see God and our heavenly parents is also how we're going to see kind of the rules and laws and commandments. And wait till we get to the, the law of Moses where we see this kind of uh, on steroids, if you will. Okay, When really, it, I think we make it too complicated. And if we're trying to understand uh, our relationship with God and what God desires for us, I think it's far more simple, uh, and this isn't being uh, overly simplistic, but because I think everything is kind of subsumed in this. But this is kind of how I view, end up viewing these things. Um, when we talk about acts of obedience, am I obeying? Am I doing the things that I'm supposed to do? What if we saw those acts of obedience, things that God has asked, as any act? I I see obedience as any act of love that moves us closer to them. And because part of these acts of obedience are the transforming, changing, turning us into those people that can live with him. So actually, any commandments and things that we're asked to do really kind of come under the acts of love idea that is as a result of that, that moves us closer. That, to me, is obedience. And is really kind of uh, being drawn to them. Conversely, when we talk about sin or disobedience, have I sinned? Have I done something wrong? Well, I think the question that needs to be asked is that this sin or disobedience becomes any selfish action that distances us from them it may not even be on the official list of rules but if our actions and the things that we're doing create distance and a consequence of distance is pain and loss I think that's sin And the beautiful thing we were talking uh, within the last couple of weeks about the role of repentance and penancing and penalties is that the beautiful thing about this is simply repentance is about going from here to here. I'm going to stop doing the selfish actions that distance me from my God and start doing the acts of love that move me closer. When we're doing that, then obedience and commandments are joy because they bring me in closer proximity to the source of real joy rather than leave me distant. And we use the example in the past classes, best example out there I think is uh, the prodigal son who found himself enjoying life for a long time but distant from his father, distant from his village, and came to himself and turned around to find a father waiting on the other side that was just saying, he's lost, but now he's found. He was farther away, now he's closer. And I think it's beautifully done because, again, if we're going to view God in terms of our relationship to both of our heavenly parents we're seeing things that we do because they want to draw us in the Savior says I will be nailed on the cross that I may draw men and women to me I'm, uh, as a, as a hand I would gather my chicks in other words we worship parents that are anxious to have a relationship with us and are anxious to give us guidelines and directions that will draw us closer to them it just ain't more complicated than that, uh, though we really try hard uh, to, try, to try and do that, right? Okay, so with that as our backdrop, let's approach uh, one of the most pivotal characters in all of history and, and how, this, how, how viewing God and viewing the things that God is asking us to do had a direct bearing on their daily choices and decision making, and that, of course, is uh, Moses. That with uh, with Moses, um, w- when we talk about the laws of Moses, or we're talking about the Mosaic Law, and and we're talking and we watch we watch the Ten Commandments again, or or something like this, or if you're doing the, if you're really wanting to bless yourself and you're watching the chosen. Uh, you're going to get a chance to see how this plays out. So, with Moses, let, let's talk about uh, what happened there. Uh, now, with with Moses, remember we kind of put him in the boat. We're floating him down to Egypt. He's found on the other side. Uh, he's going to stay as an heir to the to Pharaoh until he commits some acts of disobedience, and then he's distanced from that. Pharaoh God, uh, and that would seem to be how it works. But let's remember something about this. The children of Israel, during the time that they are in Egypt, we, we sometimes forget, I think, that they are, these are pre-Law of Moses, Hebrews. We want to picture. Uh, Judaism at the time of the Savior or even uh, modern Judaism but especially the time of the Savior and all the things that they're doing and saying uh, and the directions and the arguments between the Savior and the Pharisees and and all of that. Uh, These Israelites in Egypt for 400 years The main religion they've got is what Jacob taught them and that was uh, doing the, the sacrifices that have been performed by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and, and kind of a foggy understanding of God as they come into Israel or into Egypt and then over 400 years, what's going to happen here? Well, because there's no law of Moses yet, and, and think, think about what that means. That means no feasts, no festivals, no tabernacle, no temple, uh, no uh, mosaic uh, cleanliness laws, no uh, prayer shawls, no talits, no kapors, uh, no kosher, no no, 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 no Sabbath laws. Everything that would come with the law of Moses had not yet come to these children of Israel in Egypt. So because of that these harsh rules and what we we tend to call the law of Moses these only come after they reject a direct relationship with God. And we're probably about two weeks away from that. We'll probably get next week In our next class, we'll probably talk more about the plagues and interaction with Pharaoh and and everything where the the plagues were actually a recreation of the creation. It's kind of a fun uh, thing about how that exactly worked. They were being recreated uh, and coming across the chaos of the water, but that's a story for another time. Uh, But they are going to reject a direct relationship, face-to-face God at Sinai and that, and only then will we get all of the harsher, more controlling, more minute law upon law upon law upon law. That is, su- is a substitute for the relationship they could have had. Uh, so, after 400 years, we need to remember that just by sheer association they would think more act more, believe more Egyptian than they were going to be Israelite the guidance and direction and their religion in Egypt we know nothing about but simply like the, the Nephites who were uh, went through about Uh, Two to 300 years of apostasy, and and they were actually about the time of King Benjamin, they were more Mayan than they really were Judeo-Christian, and had to have some harder laws implemented under King Benjamin. These Israelites were going to be, needed a, a harsher, more direct kind of thing, because they had turned Egyptian, they thought Egyptian, they they saw pyramids, they saw pharaohs, they saw the, uh, the Omduit, which was kind of the Egyptian endowment of what it takes to become a god uh, traveling through the underworld and, and all of that kind of thing. Okay? So, after 400 years, they're more Egyptian than Hebrew. And the Egyptians had a lot of gods. Uh, there are lots of gods uh, for different purposes like An- Anubis and Isis and uh, Mot and all of the, those gods with different purposes and requirements so if you were to ask um, your average uh, Hebrew still living under slavery in Egypt about God their knowledge and understanding might be a mix of what their forefathers knew 400 years ago but we're really kind of influenced by what we're seeing and these pharaohs seem to be pretty godlike and that's what they try and recreate with the golden calf uh, to try and recreate Egyptian style worship Uh, that's what they know so that is part of the task because Moses isn't much better here, guys. Moses had grown up, been learned at the feet of the pharaohs, learned at the feet of the courts of Egypt, and might not have known that much more beyond. Where else would he have learned it? So, as with Joseph Smith, as Moses is called here, God has to begin, not just to issue a calling, but ahead of that has to issue a training and an understanding of who he is and what he wants and how he functions and what his relationship is to them all of this has to be learned anew and afresh okay now so in this burning bush experience experience that Moses is going to have. If you'll listen very closely, you'll watch the slow unfolding of God teaching his prophet and then we have the blessing by the way of seeing what what happens here in Exodus and then we have the added blessing in the restoration of having Moses one who's going to give us a second experience with God on the mountain and he's going to be taught a lot more in a lot more depth. Uh, so this is vision number one. Moses, one, we could call vision number two. Uh, but let's start here, because this is primary time. It's, it's start-from-scratch time between God and Moses. Okay? All right. So here's what's going to happen. In, from the burning bush, Moses is going to hear, I am the God of your father. And by the way, this is, uh, th- this translation comes from uh, a Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter, uh, who has been embraced at BYU, and, and uh, they, they love his uh, version of the Old Testament. And it makes, when you look it through the eyes of a Jewish scholar, there are going to be a couple of things that are just going to massively jump out at us. Okay? I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Okay, that's who that is for Moses. Now, what's Moses' response to this God? What's his understanding of this God? Moses hid his face, (laughs) and he's afraid to look. That'll be different from Moses 1, that by the time we get to that one, Moses will speak to God face to face. Moses is going to want his children of Israel to speak to God face to face. But in this very first instance with deity, with the burning bush and all of that, this first vision is Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God. You didn't look face to face at the pharaohs. That could bring death. So you see kind of his Egyptianness coming out here. He's afraid uh, and in this, in this uh, theophany that he's having here. Okay? Now, the Lord said, I indeed have seen the abuse of my people that, are, that is in, e- in Egypt. In this moment, Moses is going to hear very quickly, God does see what's going on he isn't a distant god he has been paying attention he's watching i have seen the abuse of my people that's in egypt it's outcry because of its taskmasters i have heard oh this is a god who not just sees but hears wow okay that's pretty fast uh this would almost be probably as earth-shaking as Joseph going into the grove seeking a, uh, a remission of his sins. And the first thing he's going to hear from uh, the son is, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, that, that's pretty important. So is this. We were sh- the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sees and hears. He's not an idol God. And I have come down. So he's not an idle God in terms of stone idol, unseen, unhearing. He's also not idle, meaning that he's engaged. He's not sitting around. I have come down to rescue Israel from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from that land to a goodly and spacious land. Wow. So in this moment of learning about the character of this deity that they worship this is a pretty awesome moment I think Moses is being taught that the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob is far different from the, the gods that they knew in Egypt Now I think this is so, but here's Moses response You know, other than, wow. I I think that would have been the the proper uh, Hebraic response. Wow. And Moses said to God, because we're going to talk about his calling in just a second. Moses said to God, Look, when I come to the Israelites and I say to them, Your God the God of your fathers has sent me to you I- I've been sent by God <laughs> you know <laughs> I think he's picturing that moment as we do in our minds when we tend to look ahead to something that might be traumatic uh, and we visualize it he's p- visualizing him probably standing in front of all of these uh, Israelites and going hey God sent me um, He's anticipating something. What's he anticipating? And they say to me, sometime in the future, but I know it's coming, what is his name? You know, Anubis we know, and Mott we know, and Isis we know. Who's the who is the God? Who is this God? What's his name? We know their names, we don't know his name. What shall I say to them? Because what Moses is saying is, Excuse me, but uh, I don't know your name. (laughs) You ever had that moment at a party or at church or somewhere, and somebody comes up and starts talking to you, and you have that embarrassing moment where you have to say, "Uh, I hate to say this, but I don't know who you are. Or, I hate to say this, but I forgot your name. Or, introduce me to your friend. You go, well this is Mike and I forgot your name You know that's not so nice uh, but the knowing of a name is critical because in in uh, Israelite terms and in Israelite history to put a name on something is to give it power naming something that's why they chose very careful uh, the name that they would put on somebody that's why the Lord is saying to Jacob, I'm going to rename you as you get a new calling. You were Jacob. Now you are Israel. Jesus is going to say, you grew up being Simon. I will call you Petra, Peter, the rock. You change the change of a name, places and power on that and that's why the name of the Lord needed to be on the temple because it gave the temple power because it had God's name on it and we are called in his name and we do things in his name names are powerful we'll talk about that a few more times when we're looking at uh, Israelite history the power of naming but in this case he needed to know what is your name and it's not just going to be well my name is a name has a meaning to it. And and in this case then I need to know your name and then what your purpose is based on that. What shall I say to them? Now Robert Alter the the Hebrew scholar Uh, Has has really he says there's been more ink spilled on the name of God in this setting than almost any other thing that they can find in the Old Testament and here's how he frames this God said to Moses I will be who I will be now he's gonna he says that uh, I am that I am is workable but he says there's more. There's a more emphatic use of the particular uh, consonants that are being used in this language without making this too complicated. So, I am that I am works. I will be who I will be is more authentic. Which, for us as Latter Day Saints, should just jump out at you. Because if, if God is going to say, what's my name? Well, I will be who I will be. On one side it says, I will be involved. I will do the things that I will do. There's something coming. But our understanding through Joseph Smith and restoration is the idea also that this Jehovah, and he will call himself Yehovah in just a moment. But what, it, what he's saying, what that means is, I will be He's talking also about a future time when Jehovah of the Old Testament becomes embodied, incarnate, to become Jesus of the New Testament. I will be who I will be. There's a a great moment in the latest episode of The Chosen, if you're watching this, and notice I keep uh, pushing this a little bit, uh, where John is talking about the creation and he loves the story of the creation and Jesus says I remember (laughs) that that was a good moment you know he's like I remember that okay I will be who I will be love that and I think it's more accurate even than I am who I am okay now it is seen to be more accurate and then he says thus shall ye say to the Israelites Yahuvah, Jehovah has sent me to you. who is Yahuwah I will be who I will be, and I will do what I will do. Uh, and that is, I am. I am somebody who will be what I would be. and I just and and there's just this powerful expression, I think that should just come ringing home to us, okay now. How is he going to do this? Um, I indeed have seen the abuse of my people. I've heard. We talked about that. I know it's pain. I've come down to rescue it. How will he rescue that? He's going to say, and now go that I may send you. I will come down among the people because I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. So you will be who you will be. Okay? And bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Draw them out and bring them home. And I will do it, surely I will. Okay? Now, so really, I love the idea that when he says, I have come down, like he said in, in the previous verse, in 14, I will come down, really means, I'm going to send you. And that's how God works. Is that if I'm going to come down, I'm going to come down through my servants and I'm going to, to uh, take care of things. Well, Moses' response, I love this, said, um, but look, uh, they will not believe me. They will not heed my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then, And then this, and this ought to resonate with almost all of us who are part of God's work. And, the, and our acts of obedience, the things that draw us close to God. Uh, please, no man of words am I. Quote that to the bishop next time you get called to do something. No man or woman of words am I. I'm not sure I can give that talk in state conference. Not at any time in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. And I love this. I am heavy-mouthed and heavy-tongued. <laughs> I am heavy-mouthed and heavy-tongued. Yes. How many of us have said to a calling of the Lord, uh, you know what? I'm heavy-mouthed and heavy-tongued. I don't talk good often. And we know that he's gonna. the Lord will say, okay, I'll get you some help. You still have the responsibility Mr. Heavy-Tongued and Heavy-Mouthed. But it's all, that's how I'm going to come down is through you. Okay. So, our lesson. Our personal weakness will be accounted for that we may do the things that draw us to him. Even if we are heavy-tongued and heavy-mouthed. And that is how God will come down, because that is how our relationship with deity works. It's not just, it's nice to know that we are an heir to everything that the Savior has, but that heir is expected to do a lot of things. And, we, and, and that relationship says, we need your help. I will come down and I will do it through you in the midst of your weaknesses. I think Joseph Smith felt that over and over and over and over. So let me, let me finish up by saying this. Uh, something that we mentioned kind of in the last couple of weeks here. Uh, and and maybe this is kind of our takeaway uh, from this class. Again, we have been invited to collaborate with our heavenly parents in the midst of our weaknesses in the midst of our relationship we have been invited to collaborate with our heavenly parents in order to reconcile the entire family of mankind. First of all to each other through family history and temple work and the gospel and most importantly to their God so that they can do those things that draw them closer to God not farther away quite a task but it's part of the task of our relationship and one who has a relationship with God has a relationship with his children and has responsibilities that go with that brothers and sisters I bear you my testimony that the way that we view God is the way that we view how God views us to have a relationship with them our heavenly parents is for them to have a relationship with us To recognize that what we expect of them teaches us a lot about what they expect of us. In this eternal relationship that will bring us back into their presence, back into reconciliation with them. I bear you my testimony that that's what the Lord intends. And what a blessing that is. And I leave that testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.